Well, the question that we're asking this particular Advent season is, what did the angels know about Christmas that we might miss if we're not careful? Uh, what, what did they see? Uh, what did they discern uh, beneath the surface of the Christmas story that's now so familiar to us, perhaps, that its deeper meaning can be lost? Last week, I suggested to you that it, it was the child that the angels uh, seemed to have noticed first. It was the wonder of this child and all that he would do in this world that the angels seemed most excited about. Uh, I, I said last week that they seemed to discern that this child that Mary was bearing would, if he was taken into the center of our lives, change everything about life for us, much as it changed that roaring camp, that mining camp that I used as an illustration in the message last week. I want to press further, if I may, this morning into this same idea of the change that Jesus brings as we behold the significance of his life. And I want to do that by turning our focus today at another encounter between an angelic messenger and someone else who appears in the uh, Christmas story, one of the other central figures we meet around the, the manger, so to speak. The first chapter of Matthew's gospel records that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, he says. I know it looks bad. I know the uh, circumstances of this pregnancy seem to be the, the sign of an utter disaster in your life and her life. Do not be afraid, Joseph, the angel is saying here, for God is at work in the midst of the darkness. God is at work in the midst of this chaos. God is at work for good, is the message of the angel. And what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, the angel says. She's going to give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Jesus. The word Jesus is a Latin translation for the word that would have originally been spoken, no doubt, in the Aramaic. It would have been Yeshua, Yeshua or Joshua, as we know the word, which literally means the Lord saves. You're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will carry in his very name the mission he has to save people from their sins. Now, I think it is safe to say that at the time that these words were spoken by the angel to Joseph, the man Joseph could have had no idea how these words the angels were speaking could possibly really come true. When months later, Joseph was actually standing at the side of the manger, staring into the eyes of the promised child himself in that Bethlehem stable, it is doubtful that Joseph still had any real clue as to how this baby could possibly fulfill the prophecy that had been given to him in the uh, dream in which the angel spoke. How could this baby fulfill his namesake? But if Joseph could have stepped back, I think, 
If Joseph could have seen the events of his own life, that moment in the Bethlehem stable, seen it in the context of that much larger story which the angels saw, he would have understood. If he could have looked at the events of Christmas through angel eyes, as I hope he will get a chance to do that this morning, I think he would have dropped to his knees in awe before the magnificent glory of God's gracious plan in which he was now standing in the very flow. As I said last week, the angels, who are the invisible witnesses to all of human life, the angels who I believe by faith are present with us here, right in this space now, invisibly, just as they were present with Joseph uh, in that place 2,000 years ago. Those angels were also witness to another famous encounter between a father and a son. We live 2,000 years after Joseph and his son. Uh, but 2,000 years before that even, there was another very famous encounter between a father and a son in which angels also played a significant role. We're told in the book of Genesis chapter 2, that an ancestor of Joseph's named Abraham received a visit from an angel. Abraham was an old man at the time of this particular visit. He had one child, only one child. He was living in an obscure land that did not yet have a name. In fact, he had given up a tremendous amount to get to this place of obscurity. He 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 had had a life that was, in a sense, an adventure in downward mobility. He had had an extraordinarily prosperous life in Ur of the Chaldees. And the voice of God came to him and said, I'm calling you to a new place, to a new land. I want you to pick up the tent stakes, I want you to pack them up and I want you to go to the land that I will show you. And Abraham miraculously and marvelously had done this. He had responded to the voice. He had followed where the voice told him to go. And he now found himself trying to make a home in this land with no name. Uh, In this place we call Palestine or Israel. And And seeing the faithfulness of his servant, seeing the amazing obedience of this humble man, God had made what must have also seemed to Abraham at the time an outrageous promise, even more outrageous maybe, even than the one made to Joseph. He had said, I will surely bless you. I will surely make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. And through your offspring, all nations on the earth, all nations on the earth will be blessed. And Abraham must have just struggled to take in how this could possibly so be so. How he, an old man with a little son in an Obscure land could possibly be the agent of a blessing that would flow out across the earth and touch all nations. By the time of Joseph, however, this promise that the angel makes to Abraham has strangely and remarkably already been fulfilled in some significant measure. The descendants of Abraham, as you know, had multiplied far beyond anything that that original father had possibly dreamed. They had created the nation Israel 
which had not only survived millennia of occupation and persecution and exile and trial, but it actually, through the agency of their suffering, their exile, their struggles, had actually been sent out in diaspora, had been scattered like seeds all across the ancient world. And had begun to multiply the witness of the scriptures as a source of blessing to many nations. They would be the crucial fertile ground for when the gospel began to stretch out into the ancient world. The very scattering of these peoples would become the original sites of the church that would stretch out even further the blessing of God. But the ultimate implications and the final reach of God's promise to Abraham were still no clearer to Joseph than they had been to old father Abraham. Only the angels could see it. I mean, we can now, perhaps slightly, somewhat, only the angels could see At this particular moment, the angel was speaking to Joseph. Only the angels could see the magnificent signpost that God had placed on that great storyline of history on the day that he issued the promise to Abraham. He was telling us what was to come. Now let's turn back to Genesis chapter 22, if you would. You may find it helpful to open up in your own Bible to Genesis 22. We're going to look at the first 14 verses together and try and see for ourselves something of what the angels may have seen. Now, I want to invite you to pay close attention to the words that I've highlighted in capital letters on the screen, on the projection window, if you, if you will. Then God said to Abraham, we read, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. So early the next morning, Abraham got up. He saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood For the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place at a distance. He saw the place of sacrifice at a distance. He looked up on the third day and saw it. Now let me stop right there, if I may. And make an observation that I think is absolutely essential to understanding not just those times in this particular part of the biblical story, but crucial to understanding the times in which you and I are living today. Most of us are aware that primitive cultures put a lot of emphasis on sacrifice. Raise your hand if you knew that. Right. A lot of emphasis on sacrifice. Sacrifices were done to address problems in their cities, in their villages, in themselves, in their environment. Uh, ancient peoples made burnt offerings of grain to, as a sacrifice to try and bring a greater harvest. They sacrificed prisoners of war in hopes of 
taking into them their strength. They sacrificed maidens in hopes of bringing greater uh, fertility or rain. They sacrificed pigeons and oxen and, and, and doves and sheep. We read a lot about that in the Old Testament in order to atone for sin. And we call these kinds of practices primitive or pagan or heathen because they seem so obviously cruel and superstitious. And they often were. They're cruel and superstitious. But what early cultures did seem to grasp, uh, what an earlier version of humanity seemed to understand at some core level, is that great gains, the most important kind of gains, require great sacrifice. That there's no gain without the pain of somebody shedding blood, of somebody laying it down in, in, in some way. And I, and I make this point this morning because I, as I look around our world today, I think we are, at least in American culture, sorely in danger of forgetting this fundamental principle of life. We increasingly, as I read our culture, seem to live as if freedom and prosperity can come without anybody shedding blood. Freedom and prosperity just come our way without cost, without some kind of sacrifice. God forbid it should be our sacrifice. We want health and we want good looks, but without diet and exercise. Somebody invent a pill. That will spare me from sacrificing in any way to get health and well-being. We want better marriages. We want healthier kids and stronger families without cutting in any way our activities, our entertainments, or our pride. We want the gain without the pain. We want a richer inner life without spiritual disciplines. We become religious consumers instead of devoted disciples in our homes, in our workplaces, and if it isn't already very obvious, very much so in our politics. We demand our entitlements. We rack up more and more debt. We refuse to compromise if it will cost us something. We want the gains without the pains. Now, of course, we're very wise to debate the question of which sacrifices should be made. And we're wise to debate, I suppose, who should bear what share of the sacrifice. But to behave as if the sacrifice must never be ours, um, that it must be somebody else's, some other party, some other people, some other person in my home, who must do what is needed to fix things. Um, well, that's, in my mind, that's beneath heathen, pagan. That's beneath selfishness and superstition. That, that is describing, when I meet it in myself, you know what that's describing? And I meet it in myself. It's describing sin. It's describing the core human nature problem. 
I want what I want without boundaries and without cost. But it is not possible, and you you know this as much as I do, it isn't possible to close the gaps of life without cost. It is not possible to close the huge gap between the left and the right. It is not possible to close the divide between the rich and the poor, between the wife and the husband, between the young and the old, between the weak and the healthy, between the holy God and sinful man. You can't close the gap without blood being spilled, without cost being paid by someone, someplace. And the greatest people, history shows, the greatest beings are the ones who are willing to pay the price, to do the hard thing, to do often the uh, unjustifiable thing or the unnecessary thing in order to close the gap. Somehow Abraham seemed to understand this. It's the only way I can figure it. Somehow something in this very primitive, old-time, ancient individual seemed to grasp something of this basic principle of life. That father's only son, you've got to remember going back to the story, that father's only son was his life's blood. It was more precious to him than the blood that coursed through his veins. He had waited so long for this son. It was, Isaac was everything to Abraham and to Sarah. And the fact that he tells his servants in this story, as he is going away with uh, Isaac to the place of sacrifice, as he tells them, we, meaning he and Isaac, will come back to you. We're going to go over there and we're going to worship and we're going to come back to you. The fact that Abraham says this is an indication that even though he knows God has said to him, take the son and sacrifice him, he is praying, he is hoping against hope, that he knows the character of God well enough that this God is not going to actually ask him to give up his one and only son. But nonetheless, he separates himself from others and begins to take that slow march toward that possibility of unthinkable sacrifice. And to close the gap between the God he knew in the God that was now calling him to do something he did not know or understand or even condone, Abraham is ready to take these small steps towards greater sacrifice. And such, then it, the scripture goes on, Abraham took the wood for the offering and placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife And as the two of them went on together, and listen to this conversation. I don't know a more poignant conversation that's ever occurred in so few words anywhere in life. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. Where? is the lamb for the offering. 
And Abraham answered, God will provide himself the lamb, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. And he bound his son Isaac and he laid him on the altar. He laid him on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, from the invisible places, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Under his breath, thank God. Thank God. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up and there in a thicket, He saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Thank God. And so Abraham called that place Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord It will be provided. For generations, they would repeat the story. That it might be required that one's only son be given up. And that on the mountain, it would be provided. On top of the wood. 2,000 years later, from that father and son story of Abraham and Isaac, the Bible says this. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David, which is also to say, to the house and line of Abraham. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child, another promised child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him on the wood in the manger. Now, I I don't suppose that Joseph was thinking much of Father Abraham as he stood in that Bethlehem stable. Even the most significant stories of life have this way of getting crowded out by the urgent things that are always happening to us. You know this yourself. You know how easy it is. You think of the great storyline of the scriptures when you come to a place like this, and that stuff gets crowded out as soon as you go out into the rustle and clatter of this world. 
So I don't suppose Joseph had Abraham in mind as he stood there in that manger, but if he could have looked through angel eyes at the scene in which he was standing, if he could have pulled back and seen this particular encounter happening right there in that Bethlehem stable and seen it from the vantage point of the angels, as I hope we will today, he might have gotten it. He might have gotten it. Because you see, the angels could see that crude manger made of sticks and logs like feeding troughs in those days always were. And they may have flashed back to another pile of sticks and logs on another hillside long before on which a child was laid. And I can imagine them gasping, those angels, as they gazed in wonder upon Mary's little lamb lying there on the wood on that dry hay that looked almost like kindling, ready for the fire. And in that moment, they would have understood that all along, the story of Abraham and Isaac had been pointing towards this moment. This was what the story was all about. It was readying us. It was preparing us for the significance of this particular moment. And they understood, perhaps, maybe they didn't yet get it. I don't know, that this particular moment actually pointed beyond itself, too. It pointed to another hillside, to another place where this same perfect lamb would be laid down upon the crossbars of an even more rugged wood and sacrificed. Did you know that Mount Moriah? is Jerusalem. Did you know that? That the sacrifice, the almost sacrifice of Isaac occurred on Mount Moriah and that that mountain eventually became the place where Jesus died. God had not required the sacrifice of Isaac. God had not required it. Because the sacrifice that was truly needed to to close the gap, the sacrifice that was needed to really close the distance between the holy God and the broken, sinful, blind humanity was so much greater than any earthly father and son could possibly supply. After the service this morning, the first service, somebody came through and says, I just don't get it. I don't get it. How could God have asked Abraham to do that? How could he have asked Abraham to sacrifice his son? How could he have put Abraham through that? And I said, you know, I think God did that to put us through something, to take us inside, to to unravel us the way you're unraveled right now as we imagine what it would be like to give up your one and your only son and in some small way taste what God actually did and did not require of Abraham. To close the incalculable distance 
between the goodness and the glory of a holy God and the unimaginably blind sinfulness of every one of us. What's in it for me? I'm entitled. Pay my debts. Do it for me, people. To close that kind of gap, somebody needed to make a sacrifice. Someone who had no need to make the sacrifice needed to do it. Someone who had entirely justifiable rights and deserved entitlements had to lay them down. Someone who no government could ever compel to relinquish his status and his comforts had to relinquish them for the sake of others. Someone who could never have been forced into doing good to his enemies, who could never have been guilted into paying the debts of those who didn't earn the blessings, who weren't entitled to the blessings. Somebody, somebody needed to do it nonetheless. Someone like this had to sacrifice if humanity was to gain the hope of healing. Someone had to bleed the kind of love that is our only salvation. And I would add our desperately needed inspiration in our day. Someone had to shed blood. Who? would actually do that. Think about it. Somebody didn't have to give up anything. Who would do that for the sake of people not entitled to it? Who would do this? And the father... And the son cried out in unison, I would. And I will. This is something of what the angels saw, I think. As they gathered around the manger, it became clear. They remembered the wood at Mount Moriah. They saw the wood here in Bethlehem. They caught a glimpse, perhaps, of the wood on Calvary's hillside, not too far out in the future. They saw it all. All that that wood tells us of the vastly larger wood, spelled W-O-U-L-D, in the heart of God himself. And everything was crystal clear to them. All the words suddenly made sense to them. God will provide himself the lamb who my son will be the lamb i will provide saith the lord and on the mountain of the lord it will be provided as it was one dark friday provided for our salvation and you are to give him the name jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And you've been saved. From the ultimate penalty. From having to make the ultimate sacrifice. 
you've been saved. The question is, does the knowledge of all this, does seeing this penetrate us and alter us in any meaningful way? This is how you can tell. This is how you can know whether your salvation, the sacrifice he made, has a temporal consequence beyond the eternal one. When the spirit of the living God comes to you as he will in the days to come, and he asks you to sacrifice something more that you're holding on to, to meet the needs that he sees, when you have to make a choice between taking a sacrificial step to close the gap between you and somebody else or just letting the division stand and pretending that you don't hear the voice speaking to you at all. When God says, I came to earth to be like you, would you be willing to sacrifice something toward a family member an enemy, an outsider, some pressing need, would you be willing to do that in order to show yourself a bit more like me? Your answer, if you have received that salvation, will most likely not be, I won't, but... I would. I will. The angels saw, I believe, that it is on this wood, on this wood, that Christmas came and Good Friday happened and the hope of our world still, in so many ways, depends. Please pray with me. God, you know the you know this world in which we live so much better than we do. And you see the gaps, the divisions, the seemingly uncrossable chasms in our homes. Uh, in our relationships, in our politics. You see all of the places where some sacrifice is needed to bridge the divide. And someone needs to take the first step. We simply ask, Lord, for the ability, like Abraham, like Joseph before us, to not simply hear your voice, but to trust and obey and to step forward, responding to your call so that even through our momentary pain, that greater gain which you so long to bring may come to pass. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.